morning, brothers and sisters. It's good to see everyone here. It's wonderful to have a family to come home to every Sunday. Good to see some smiling faces back from trips and looking forward to getting into the Word together. The Lord has good things for us in His Word today in Colossians chapter 3. You know, I've heard a lot of analogies about marriage and over the years, but this week as I studied, I found a new one that I thought was very apropos for the message and the passage we're talking about today. And it goes like this, marriage is like a volcano. What an encouragement that is. When you think of volcanoes, it just brings up warm feelings all over, doesn't it? Uh, when peaceful, it can be the most pleasing sight of creation. And I know when I used to live outside of Vancouver and look at Mount Baker every morning, that beautiful volcanic mountain just sitting there uh, with white snow cap was amazing. But when eruptions begin, it can turn ugly very quickly. In marriage, most eruptions begin um, either by spewing little bits of steam and generate only a few tremors. Sometimes, however, they churn out molten lava day after day. Too often they blow the tops off marriages and turn what were once promising unions into empty craters. Such eruptions nearly always arrive by stealth. Friction begins long before partners are aware of it. And it's important to detect the early signs of this friction and, the administ and to administer the only sure corrective. And the corrective for a marriage is the gospel's transforming power upon the heart of the man and the woman as they embrace God's design for marriage. As I preach today, I know that we have marriages in all kinds of different states. And, uh, and so the good news is, is that what we're going to talk about today is going to be very helpful this week and next week um, in helping us to improve our marriages for the glory of God and for our joy. Today, I was going to try to do both men and women. Uh, I was not able to do that. Don't be discouraged, women. I don't have just a load to pile on you today, but I have, I have enough here that I need to really focus on chapter, uh, verse 18, and then next week looking at the men's role as loving their wives as Christ loved the church. Now the challenge with this message is, we've all heard this, haven't we? And we've heard it, and we've heard it, and we've heard it, and you could probably preach this message that I'm going to preach here today. The question is not, have we heard it? The question is, have we understood it? Have we embraced it? Are we walking in obedience to it for the glory of Christ? And may I say that everyone here has room to grow. And so we look forward to that both for the men and for the women. And so men, as this message is mainly directed to the women, you need to hear what God is calling them to do, not so you can remind them of that. This is their message. I'm just about, I was almost to the point of thinking, we'll just move the men into the fellowship hall for some coffee and cookies while we talk to the women, and then the same thing next week. Because the challenge with these two messages is, the person who needs to hear the message that's directed to them is thinking about the other person, and they're both thinking of what each other should be doing instead of what they should be doing. Okay? All right. So it's, today's passage is not an exhaustive treatment of marriage, but Paul is dealing with some of the hot spots that cause friction in most marriages. It was true of the Colossians, and it's true of us today. Um, so it's a short, succinct passage. It's not Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 has several verses of long explanation. This is very short and very to the point. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. But even in those two short phrases, there is enough gospel truth there to transform marriages. And that is our goal for the glory of God so we have our instructions. Each of us have our instructions. Males have their instructions. Females have their instructions. Husbands and wives have their instructions. 
Here's what's interesting when you look at the passage. He doesn't say, wives, if your husbands love you as Christ, then submit to them. It also doesn't say, why, uh, it also doesn't say husbands, if your wives submit to you, then love them in the Lord. There's no conditional statement for the commands. The commands are individual and they can be carried out separate from each other. That's good news. That means even if you have a spouse who is not making much progress, you can be obedient to Christ and can make improvements in your marriage. You don't have to wait for him. He doesn't have to wait for her. We can focus on what God's calling us to do. In fact, instead of waiting for your spouse to shape up and do his or her part, we should expect that, we will not, that they will not do it perfectly. If you've been married very long, you should have that expectation. Your spouse is not perfect. They're not going to carry it out perfectly. And some things that started in the marriage are still in the marriage. So the expectations should be brought down some. Expect that he or she will have weaknesses, perhaps many weaknesses, just as you do. Scripture makes it clear that we are weak, fallen creatures as a result of Genesis chapter 3. All of us carry within us the fall in the garden. And there is nothing like marriage to expose our weaknesses. When two people live in close proximity, they become acutely aware of the shortcomings of the other. This is why some people think it's better not to be married. Because before they got married, everything was just wonderful. But once they actually started living together in close proximity, all the problems began to come to bear. That's just normal life. And what are those things? The annoying personality quirks. The gnawing insecurities, the bad habits, the blind spots, the troubling obsessions, the besetting sins, and the lingering baggage that we hope that we're all going to be able to change. As Pastor Tim Savage in his book, No Ordinary Marriage, observes, weaknesses seldom completely go away. The faults of newlyweds usually follow them into old age. Isn't that good news? I told you it's going to be an encouraging message. It is because of Christ. It's a very encouraging message. When partners react to weakness with scorn, marriages languish. When they respond with grace, marriages blossom. Then he continues, the weaknesses of marriage can usually be boiled down to two fundamental defects. Husbands don't love their wives and wives don't respect and submit to their husbands which just happens to be what Paul has told us today in this passage. Embrace God's instruction for your part in the relationship and watch him transform your marriage into a beautiful picture of the gospel that he's designed for it to be. Even beyond our weaknesses and besetting sins, we struggle with what's called basic incompatibilities. Guys realize very quickly girls aren't like them in more than one way. And ladies quickly understand that the men aren't like them. God has designed us to be male and female. And it's wonderful. And it's incredibly challenging. G.K. Chesterton said, I've known many happy marriages, but never a compatible one. Isn't that interesting? For a man and a woman, as such, are incompatible. Billy Graham once described his marriage as happily incompatible. We're different. And all the work in the world to make us the same is not going to happen. Because we are different by design. And I don't know all the reasons why God did that. There's tremendous blessings in the differences. But I think one thing, it helps us to realize as we try to relate with each other and love each other and have a wonderful marriage, I think as we struggle with that and we struggle with our partner's sins and their besetting and these issues in their lives, we get a picture of what it's like for God to relate with us. We get a very good picture of the holy, eternal, all-sufficient God 
relating with man who has fallen. And so as we become anxious and we become concerned and we become frustrated in our relationship and marriage, let us realize the feelings of the Father toward us and his necessary need for compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and forbearing and forgiving and love. This is what we need from him because we're this kind of people. So we've learned in this passage that God transforms a Christian's life. We put off the old, we put on the new. And then that transformation continues to take place in the context of relationships. In context of relationships at church, in the home, in the, in the husband-wife relationship, with, with the children and the parents, and with the masters and the slaves. And in our mind, we don't, since we don't have slavery in America... Uh, we think of employer-employee. But in uh, the homes in Rome, the father was, you know, he was in relation with his wife. He was in relationship with his children. He was also the master who was over the slaves in his own household. So he was literally involved in all these relationships. Um, the acid test of the gospel is in marriage relationships, family relationships, and working relationships. This is where the rubber meets the road. For a lot of us, we believe the gospel is powerful enough to save us. Some of us question whether it's powerful enough to change us. And some of us even then question whether it's powerful enough to really revolutionize our relationships. And I'm here to proclaim today that it is powerful. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection gives us the power to put off the old man, to put on the new man, and to revitalize our marriages and our homes and all of our relationships because of what Christ has done for us. And so this morning, friends, there is tremendous hope Now, when we're in a relationship that has been going south for a while, we can tend to lose hope, lose hope in what God is wanting us to accomplish, lose hope in the vision that we had. We can all start off idealistic, but once you get hit, and once the waves of the world and the flesh and the devil hit us, we can easily become discouraged. But there's great hope in this passage for marriages today as we're talking about. Jeffrey Bromley, in his book, God and Marriage, states, As God made man in his own image, so he made earthly marriage in the image of his own eternal marriage with his people. So we've been made in the image of God. Our marriages have been made in the image of his marriage with his covenant people. And that's why this is an important aspect for us in marriage, is that obviously the husband reflects Christ, and the wife reflects the church in this relationship. But we're also dealing with the fall. Wives, submit to your, your husbands, Ephesians says, your own husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Only 11 little words there, and the world is outraged by this simple commandment of a wife to submit to her husband. This is a result of the fall. We know in the fall that women went from being submissive to their husbands and husbands loving their wives. The fall radically changed that and caused women to want to control their husbands and husbands to want to dominate their wives. And the gospel of Jesus reverses the curse and begins to help us get back to what God had originally intended in the garden before the fall. As we think about our volcano illustration, there are underlying frictions that take place in our marriage. There is fear, there is selfishness, there is lack of forgiveness that all can begin to boil below the surface and eventually come out to defile many. 
Well, what was it like in, in the Roman world? In the Roman world, this concept of wives submit to your husbands and husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church was foreign. The man was the ruler of his house. His wife was simply subject to him. She had few rights. She could not divorce her husband except in extreme circumstances. Um, and when a child was born into the home, the child was laid at the father's feet. And the father at that point had the decision between life and death for that child. If he picked the child up, the child became part of the family. If he left the child there, the child was taken off and put outside and exposed to the elements and died. This is the home of the Romans in which the gospel comes in to make such a radical difference. David Jeremiah said a wife was regarded as a thing, not a person, as property to be owned, not a partner to be loved. The gospel is radical. The word of God changes life. We're going to talk today about what submission is not. We're going to talk today about what submission is. We're going to talk about some of the main difficulties. We've, why is submission so hard? And we're going to talk about the source that God has given us to allow us uh, for, for wives to be able to submit to their husband and to be a blessing to their family. What submission is not? Submission, number one, does not imply inferiority. It does not imply inferiority. Uh, in Galatians 3.28, we read, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ. Jesus submitted to Father on, on, on earth. He submitted to Joseph and Mary. You and I literally flow throughout the day moving from, from being in authority to being under authority, don't we? At, at, at FCF, I'm, I'm an elder at the church. I'm in authority. I go to College Plus. I'm in submission to the authorities. I'm driving down the road in my car and I get pulled over by the police officer. I'm in submission to the state authorities. If I join a basketball team and I'm a player, I'm in submission to the coach. If I'm the coach, the coach is in, the coach is in authority of the players. And so literally as we go through our life, we are in roles of either submission to authority or our um, distributing authority to those below us. We all face that. But it's interesting, in our culture, the only one we really focus on and have a problem with is wives submitting to husbands. Isn't that interesting? Because of the feminism that we see in our culture. So submission does not imply inferiority. Matter of fact, in Galatians 3.20, we're all told that the cross of Jesus levels the playing field and everyone are saved and brothers and sisters in Christ. In other passages of scripture, we're told that the wife is a joint heir with us in the gospel and all that it brings to bear. We are heirs together of what God has for us. Two, submission does not mean putting the will of the husband before the will of Christ. As women, your first loyalty is to the Lord Jesus Christ and to submit to him. And that's one reason why you're submitting to your husband is because he has commanded you to do that. The command to submit is not, it is in the middle voice. The middle voice means this is something you voluntarily do. Husbands, this is not something you command your wives to do. Nowhere in the scripture does the, husband, does the Bible tell husbands to command their wives to submit. The Bible calls women to voluntarily submit. May I suggest to you Jesus Christ voluntarily submitted to the Father. Jesus Christ voluntarily submitted to Joseph and Mary. And he submitted to the authorities that he was under. So submission, does not, um, submission is not blind obedience. It must be regulated by God's word. If a wife is ever asked or told by her husband to do something that violates scripture, she is not only free to disobey, she is obligated to disobey. Our submission to any authority stops 
when we're called upon to disobey the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In Acts 5.29, Peter and the apostles were being told by the Sanhedrin not to preach in Jesus' name. And they made this simple reply, we must obey God rather than men. Women, may I encourage you to obey God. If you have a choice between obeying your husband and obeying Christ, that you would obey Christ and not your husband. Three, submission does not mean you must submit to all men. Do I hear a praise God for that? Notice it says to your husband or in Ephesians to your own husband. Four, submission does not mean agreeing with everything your husband says or avoiding all attempts to help him to grow in godliness and wisdom. You're a tremendous resource for your husband to help him to grow. He needs to be encouraged in his walk with Christ. If done with love, love and gentleness and sincere humility, you can be an incredible helpmeet in helping your husband become sanctified according to the will of God. This means there's time for constructive criticism for a wife with her husband to help him see his blind spots. There's a time to say, you know, we really need to do this in our home to help it become more effective for Christ. Honey, have you noticed that that ex-child over here is having a challenge? We need to give more attention over here. The wife is to speak truth to her husband. They are brothers and sisters in Christ, even though there's this this relationship where she submits to him. And she is a huge counselor for him. Katie Luther, the wife of reformer Martin Luther, was a model of this kind of helpful submission. She was not bashful in her communication with her husband. And although respectful, she pointedly and sometimes humorously gave him counsel. On one particular occasion, Martin, who was given to extreme cases of depression, was moping around the house, and he did not respond to any of her exhortations. So she put on her all-black mourning attire. Her husband asked her, Catherine, why are you dressed in mourning black? Someone has died? Oh, she said, someone has died. Died, inquired Luther. I have not heard of anyone dying. Whoever, whoever has died? It seems, she replied, that God must have died. You are so depressed, you've given the impression to the whole household that God is dead. It's time for you to repent of your depression And it's time for you to rejoice in Christ and to move forward. Wives, you can be creative in how you help your husbands. I thought that was very creative of Mrs. Luther. By her clever and memorable confrontation, Katie exhorted her husband to repent of his sin and renew his trust in Christ. Wives, you need to speak truth to your husbands. They They need that. Five, submission does not mean leaving your brains or your will at the wedding altar. We need your brains. We need your help. In 1 Peter chapter 3, we find a woman who is a believer married to an unbeliever. She has, in the the middle of this relationship, had the will to choose Christ while her husband refused to choose Christ and to live her life in obedience to Christ and contradiction to the way he was living his life. And yet, she was still what? Submissive. There's a way, ladies, where you can still be under the authority of your husbands and use your mind and follow what Christ is calling you to do. Six, submission does not mean that a wife gets her person, her personal spiritual strength primarily through her husband. No, your strength comes from Christ. Yes, your husband can be a tremendous blessing as he waters you in the word and prays for you and loves you and walks according to what God has called him to do. But if he doesn't, you are not in a desert by yourself. You have the Lord Jesus Christ who loves you 
unconditionally, has forgiven you completely, has promised you all the inheritance of glory. So don't believe that just because your husband's not providing all that for you that you are in the desert. It may not be easy, but Christ is an incredible fountain with, from which to draw. Submission does not mean a woman is to act out of fear. A woman needs to understand that her hope is first of all in the Lord. And husbands, we help our wives a lot with that, don't we? We help her in our, in our, in our failings and our weaknesses to see that her hope has to be where? In Christ and Christ alone. So that's kind of what submission is not. What is, what is submission? Submission, an easy a definition, is voluntarily yielding to a recognized authority. Here's Piper's definition. Submission is the divine calling of wives. I love that. The divine calling of wives to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help carry it through according to her gifts. Ladies, you have a divine calling in life to come alongside and affirm your husband's leadership and to use all the gifts you have to help him reach the goals that God has given him to reach. And we men are grateful for that. Marriage is a major training ground for our sanctification. The husband, even before the fall, was incomplete. Men, we are incomplete without our wife. The husband will never reach his full potential apart from the input and support of his wife. I am not the man I used to be when I got married. And my wife has had tremendous investments into my life. Painful investments at times, having to correct me in areas where I was foolish or wrong. And sometimes not being thanked for it right away. But wives, we need you as husbands. We need you. There's a reason God put us together. He said it's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And each of you wives have all that you need through Christ to be able to help your husbands be all that God wants them to be. Isn't that good news? It's wonderful news. So submission, first of all, is a disposition of honor and to affirm a husband's authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership a desire to be under his authority and to yield to his leadership. Secondly, submission is fundamentally an attitude and an act of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. As we obey this scripture in 1 Corinthians 3.18, wives were looking first to Christ and submitting to him and then submitting to our husbands in the Lord Third, submission is a commitment to support one's husband in such a way that he will reach his full potential as a man of God. That is your goal, ladies. And at times, you are going to be completely overwhelmed with that task. And it's going to cause you to run back to the cross and draw your strength from Christ. Number three, why is submission so difficult? Why is it so difficult? You know, we need to try to get down to the root causes of why this is such a problem in all marriages, and particularly Christian marriages. I propose there are several reasons, several different types of friction that tend to build up in a marriage until the volcano erupts. Number one, as we've alluded to earlier, we are battling the curse. What happened in the fall in Genesis 3 has radically changed all of us. We have been radically changed. We said we're still in the image of God, but that image has been defaced. 
As we looked at the first part of Colossians 3, we've seen that God has, through his son, begun to restore the image and to help us put off the old man and to put on the new man. And this is, un- this is a journey that we carry out th- through our whole lives. One way we battle this is to have realistic expectations about the inevitability of marital strife. Okay? It, it comes with the territory. You must realize that you're a sinner marrying another sinner. Newsflash. Now, in, in dating or courtship or whatever you want to call it, we can always keep our good side forward for a long time. And some people can actually get into marriage before they've ever even had a conflict. But rest assured, at some point, the volcano, you cannot keep all that, the difference and the sin and the weakness all together. It's going to at some point come out. So have realistic expectations of that. For those who are planning to get married, those who are hoping to get married, those who have just gotten married and are a little bit surprised, it's okay. It comes with the territory. Puritan John Oxenbridge encouraged his husbands and wives to limit the expectation and remember they're marrying a child of Adam. We all have idealistic views of marriage. We all have idealistic views of what our marriage is going to be like. And as I think about the vows I gave my wife and they were soaring to the ceiling and they were unbelievable in all ways, shape, or form, um, I haven't quite lived up to the vows I made to my wife. We can be idealistic and we need to come down to be a little more realistic in our expectations. We're dealing with somebody who has been affected by the fall. You know your sin, you don't know all their sin, but you will as you go through life. And then you have children, and they all have a sin nature as well as a result of the fall. So we have a whole house full of sinners that we're hoping that will all come up underneath the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's have realistic expectations. We do battle the curse. That's one of the reasons for why submission is so difficult. Men, let's face it, some of us are hard to submit to because of our attitude, because of our pride, because of our self-centeredness. We can be a bear to try to submit to. Two, we battle doubt. You know, for a lot of us, we may bought into the feminist lie that God is not good in putting us in a submissive role to our husbands. Ladies, you've got to trust in the goodness of God. Jesus trusted in the goodness of God as he submitted to the will of the Father, voluntarily to the will of the Father, and God was perfect and good. And his submission brought him to the point of the garden. Remember the garden where he prayed and asked if there was any way you could take this cup from me to take this cup from me? Ladies, Jesus understands submission. He submitted to the shedding of his blood. So as you submit to your husband, and it's getting really hard, look to Jesus. Because he was willing to submit to the point of shedding his own blood. Three, we better battle selfishness. We want what we want for our own pleasure, our own comfort, our own glory. And let's face it, the husbands don't always deliver. They don't even sometimes deliver. They're worse than the U.S. Postal Service. Sometimes they never deliver. So if your focus is on your husband primarily and God secondarily, you're going to be in for a rough ride. It's going to be a bumpy ride. It's going to be an up and down ride. Four, we battle bitterness. Ladies and men too. If we don't deal rightly with the offenses that come up in every marriage, they will grow into bitterness. And bitterness makes submission extremely difficult. 
Without forgiveness, wounds fester and mistrust increases. The pressure within the volcano begins to build, causing unfathomable damage. And men, we've experienced this at times, haven't we? We have forgot to take the trash out. Kaboom! The the volcano goes up. And we're like, wow, I just forgot to take the trash out. What's the deal? Oh, no, it's been the last three months of being self-centered and selfish and pride and trampling on our wife. It's just that this, this little taking out the trash thing finally kind of brought the whole thing to the top, didn't it? We have, to, we have to fight bitterness. Without forgiveness, wounds fester. The pressure builds. Nowhere is forgiveness more essential than marriage. Husbands and wives share a very small patch of turf. And their nearness to each other magnifies personal offenses. So when sins are not smothered with forgiveness, they smolder. And eventually, they can destroy the marriage. Wives, do we have burning embers, not covered, just laying there? Anybody who's had a fire knows when you have a fire, you don't put it all out, leave some burning embers. You can wake up and have your whole field burned. Doesn't take much. Just a little bit of wind, a couple of leaves on it, they blow off, here we go. So wives, where are we at in that? Martin Luther cautioned, it's impossible to keep peace between man and woman if they will never overlook each other's faults but watch everything to the smallest point for who does not at times offend very many things must be ignored so that a peaceful relation may exist this is for both of us men and women are you the nitpicker Are you finding every fault with your husband? That becomes endless. We have to, both husbands and wives, let some things go. To overlook. We need to be looking at something else besides their faults. Yes, there are sometimes it's something is so big we have to deal with it. A lot of stuff though, we can just let it go. And know they're fallen and we're fallen. They're letting things go. We're letting things go. And we still love each other. And we're still moving down the road. If you're not able to overlook the offenses, deal with them. Forgiveness is the healing balm of marriage. For some of us, if we applied forgiveness to our marriage, it would be a new day. If we would take our list that we have of all the offenses our husband has against us or all the offenses that our wife has against us and we were to thank God that he has forgiven 10,000 times that much in us and rejoice in our forgiveness and be willing to share the forgiveness to our spouse, it would be a new day. Forgiveness is an amazing Amazing blessing. May God give us the grace to enjoy that in our own marriages. To battle bitterness, number five, we need to battle ingratitude. Instead of focusing on all the little things they don't do right, and there's a ton of them, let's battle ingratitude. How are we battling gratitude? Let's start making a list, ladies, of the things we're grateful for in our husband. That's a, that can be a pretty good list. And men, while we're here, even though we're listening for the ladies and making sure they get this down, we need to do this with our wives, don't we? We need to make a conscious list and to actually let them know this is amazing. We're going to actually tell them that we're thankful. For some things. Share that with each other. Don't focus on the spot on the wall. Focus on all the good paint on the wall. Look at the gifts God's given you in your spouse and be grateful. 
Gratitude is an amazing thing. You know, we battle, number six, we battle fear. Fear can be a very insidious eruption within the marriage and it's probably one of the biggest reasons women struggle. They're fearful of what their husband's going to do, what kind of bad decision he's going to make, how that's going to affect the family, how that's going to affect the kids. Or just fearful of how he's going to respond. Is he going to blow up again? Is he going to get depressed again? Is he not going to go to work again and we're not going to have money to live on? The whole list of worries just goes on and on and on. The fear is there. And you can, women, we can give into this fear. And it can just get larger and larger. God can use fear, though. Because you know what it teaches us? We are not in control. We all want to control our environment, don't we? But ladies, this guy, you're not going to be able to control him. And you're going to have to look to somebody more powerful. You're going to have to look to Jesus to help you in this. And trust him. And put your trust in him. Sarah, I'm telling you, Sarah went through the ringer a few times. You remember with Abraham? They went down to Egypt and Abraham said, this is my sister and she's taken into the courts and who knows what could happen in the courts of Pharaoh. Then another situation, the same thing. How did she survive? She hoped in God. Ladies, your husbands are going to do some foolish things. Hope in God. Hang on to Jesus. You know, there were three wives who were married to difficult husbands. Well, that's not just, just three wives. This was, I'm talking about these particular three wives. I don't want to have a mutiny on my hands here. One day I was, saw my wife and she had a book. It was called Married to a Difficult Man. <laughs> I'm like, um, why are you reading that book? She just kind of smiled. There were three women, and they were married to difficult husbands. One of the husbands was introspective and a workaholic. The other was impulsive and sarcastic. And the third was emotional and reckless. And each of the husbands suffered from debilitating bouts of depression. All three gave their wives plenty of reasons to fear. Yet, when these husbands died, each of these wives composed a heartfelt, grateful tribute. So what was the wife's secret? So the first one, any idea who the introspective workaholic husband was? Martin Luther? No, it wasn't. It was actually Jonathan Edwards. After his passing, Sarah wrote, What shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud, but the Lord has made us adore his goodness that we had him so long. Oh, what a legacy my husband has left us. She didn't focus on the negative. Her husband was a tremendous gift to the church. But did he have his problems? He sure did. Okay, how about the impulsive and sarcastic one? And that would be Luther's, where you get a chance to guess out loud to get the right answer. Um, And we already saw a picture of that with Catherine in her situation with his depression. Her eulogy went like this. If I had a principality or an empire and, and lost it, it would not be as painful as it is now that the dear Lord God has taken from me this precious and beloved man. Did he have his issues? He sure did. Did God use him? He sure did. He wasn't a perfect man. But this, but this lady was able to love him and to submit to him. And finally, the emotional and restless husband. Who would that be? Anybody have an idea? One of our friends, Charles Spurgeon. After his death, Susanna wrote, Now that I am parted from thee, not for a few days only, but until the daybreak and the shadows flee away, I think I hear again thy loving voice saying, Don't cry over your lamb, wifey, as I tried to give you up ungrudgingly to God. 
Not without tears. Oh, no, that is not possible. She loved that man as imperfect as he was. These wives could have been controlled by fear, but they weren't. And the mutual giving of love back and forth to each other gave them a marriage that was blessed. So ladies, here's some application points for us as we close. Number one, how are you going to do this hard job of submitting to your husband as is fitting in the Lord? And I want to say to you um, that as you do that, our hats are off to you. It is a very difficult job to submit to imperfect men. Number one, acknowledge that you and your husband have been greatly affected by the fall. Keep that in mind. Number two, rejoice that God has rescued you from the dominion of darkness and made you new creations in Christ if you're married to a believer. Rejoice that you're living with a new creation that's under construction. Draw on, and part of this same point, number two, is draw on Christ's love to meet your deepest needs. Don't look to your husband to meet your deepest needs. Look to Christ. He is the one who will meet those needs. Three, draw upon Christ's love for you as you become a channel to your husband. If you don't feel loved, Christ loves you, ladies. Christ died for you. Christ has forgiven you. And you don't have to be on a performance treadmill for him to love you. And so draw upon that great love from God to show your husband compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearing, forgiving, loving. You can't do it on your own, but through Christ living in you, you can show your husband that. Whether he deserves it or whether he doesn't. And I would say it's even more stark when he doesn't deserve it and he receives it anyway. You paint, you become Christ to him. You show him the love of Christ as you love him. Number three, remember that your obedience to God is not dependent upon your husband's obedience to God. In other words, you don't have to wait to submit to your husband till he gets his life right with God. You can obey and you can submit within the parameters we've already talked about to your husband. That should be freeing. I can get busy on this. I can improve my area of submission. My husband, he's not interested. That's okay. I'm going to continue to follow what God wants me to do in my life. This is the story of 1 Peter 3. Ladies, I would look at memorizing 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. This is a woman married to an unbeliever and what God calls her to do. Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. And I would meditate on Christ's submission in the garden. And look at Christ's submission throughout his life to his father. That will give you strength and encouragement to draw upon Christ. Number four, ask your husband, what are your goals for the week and how can I help you accomplish them? The Bible says we're help meets. So ladies, find out from your husband what he's got going on and find out how you can help him. Number five, make sure you're organized in the cleaning and the grocery shopping and the laundry and the cooking so that he is free to do what he needs to do. And this is not, men, out for you not to help in those areas. But ladies, having an organized household really is a blessing to your husband. Number six, save some energy every day for him. You've got children, you've got everything going on. Save a little bit of yourself for your husband each day to honor him that way. Seven, When you're out with others, talk about him in a positive light, even if he's a mess, an absolute mess. 
find something positive to say about your husband. Don't be over here in some little group slandering your husbands to each other. That tears your own marriage apart. Eight, be warm and gracious to his friends and family. Number nine, this is really important. They're all important. Do and say things that build him up instead of tear him down. I mean, you could have a hundred talks where you could tear him down and it would all be true. It would all be true. Instead, find those things that will build him up. Find those things he does right and let him know that. Even if it's only one little thing, if you can find it, and let him know that. I can promise you scolding him and lecturing him and beating him over the head, it will produce no good fruit in your marriage. Ten, dress in a way to please your husband. Be attractive for your husband. Obviously, within appropriate guidelines of Scripture. Eleven, when your husband sins, this is not going to be the easy one, reprove him privately and gently, always giving him hope and pointing him to the Lord. Ladies, it's a tall order. But you have Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And may I say for the men, we're grateful that you're our wives. We're grateful that you're patient with us. And may God spur us on by your love for us to be more and more of what you need in a husband. And we're praying for you and we're grateful for you. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we understand that this command is so difficult and yet it shines the light of Jesus so strongly. So Father, I pray for our our wives that you grant them grace to submit to us as is fitting in the Lord. And Lord, that they would be not afraid to speak truth to us. They would not be afraid to confront us gently in our sin. And Lord, I pray that we would hear the voice of our wives, that we would love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Father, we're grateful for marriage that you've created. We're grateful for the guidelines you've given us. And we fully acknowledge that we cannot get close to what you want except by Christ living in us. Father, I pray for our wives that they would draw heavily upon Jesus and his love for them to give them the encouragement and the hope and the strength to obey this command. In Jesus' name, amen.